This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning for what is our 32nd consecutive program in which we are dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And... The statistics, as always, are enlightening and sad. Um, Right now, uh, in the United States, we have over 8 million identified cases that are confirmed of COVID-19 and over 223,000 dead Americans, and we remember those. In Connecticut, we have over 65,000 identified cases and over 4,500 deaths. The problem here is is those numbers are going up. As predicted, we are getting into the fall, more people are indoors, and we are dealing with the concept of quarantine fatigue, a new diagnosis. But it's not really that new, because this happened in 1918 with the Spanish flu pandemic. People got tired of the quarantine. And they started having symptoms. The symptoms they best describe are physical fatigue, disturbed sleep, poor appetite, anxiety, depression, things like that. Just you're tired, tired of not being able to hug your family, having to wear a mask, not being able to see your loved ones because they're in extended care facilities. So the only contact you have with them is through a pane of glass. We're getting tired of it. But that's when you have to get tough. It's when the fatigue sets in that it's important to do your best work. Now, how do you get around that? Well, some of the suggestions are really the same way we recommend people address the issue of depression. Get on a regular regimen. Watch your diet. Exercise. Try to take some positive action. What's the positive action we all know about? Well, the positive actions are wearing a mask, social distancing, hand washing. Seeing how you can help someone else out. Take some positive action in your life to fight this vaccine. And that's often the way we'll get through this quarantine fatigue. And I said not to fight the vaccine. The vaccine is on my mind because that's what we're hoping for. That's the home run. It looks like we'll have one by middle of next year in the sense of it will be available to everyone. I'm encouraged by the fact that the studies have shown that they can recommence the studies. One person had a stroke. They stopped the study. But it was felt that that was unrelated to the vaccine. One of the stories you heard at the break is the discussion of herd immunity, right? So there's these folks with this 
Great Barrington Declaration, who say we should open everything up and let it run through. Then there's another group at the John Snow Memorandum. And those are the folks who can show us that that doesn't work. And many, many people will die. The concept of herd immunity, we keep using that term. But herd immunity is what you use for a herd of cattle. And it is based on receiving a vaccine. That's what herd immunity does. You go out, cowboys go out, vaccinate the cattle. And when they vaccinate enough cattle, right, then the herd becomes immune. Now, why do I bring that point up? Because there's a difference between the immunity you get from a vaccine and one you get from contracting the disease. In the case of COVID-19, we have no evidence whatsoever that that immunity is long-lasting. So if you get COVID-19 and you think, I am now immune, you may be wrong. You may be playing Russian roulette. We think it lasts about 90 days. It's probably variable on each individual how long it lasts. But it's certainly not what you would get from a vaccine where we know how long the vaccine, the immunity will last. So the concept of opening everything up and let it flow through might give you immunity for 90 days at the cost of another half a million deaths. Is it really worth it? Probably not. Because we know that there are certain things that work, right? Masks, social distance, hand washing. And if people tell you that masks don't work, right? There's this guy, Scott Atlas. He's a doctor. He's a radiologist. He's out there. He actually went on Twitter and said, masks, no. Actually, when you're a doctor and Twitter has to take down your post because it's dangerous to people, that's not only criminal, that's malpractice. That is malpractice. So this joker is out there trying to tell people masks don't work when we know they do, and they save lives, and it's a positive thing you can do. So we get back to the basics. Identification, isolation, contact tracing. I'm going to give you a story because everybody's worried about the economy. I'm going to give you a story that came up this week because it really brings home the idea of the importance of doing the right thing in the face of the economy. An auto repair place that I use with another friend of mine, my friend comes up to me and said, geez, I had to get the car fixed. I couldn't take it over to our buddy Mike. I said, well, why? What happened? And he said, well, he said, uh, I told him I have to drive to Florida and I got to get this worked up. And he said, we can't, we're not open. And what happened was someone was positive who works in their garage. It's a very fairly large garage that they work in. So we all had to go get tested. But because of the restrictions in testing and getting results, right, because there's not enough tests, not enough reagents. So we're shut down for at least a week till everybody here can get tested and get their results. 
that's a failure of leadership. We were told that we were going to have plenty of tests. So imagine, so this guy's economy is, is impacted not because he's got COVID. It's because somebody in his, his business has COVID and they can't get tested to find that if they're safe and not spreading it to their family. So the failure there is on identification. We didn't supply them with the right equipment. We didn't supply them with a test that you can do right away, know that you're negative, and go on with your business. That's the economic impact of this. It's not a shutdown. Nobody shut him down. He just had to do the responsible thing. And in doing that, it's costing him money. The other thing is the PPE issue. It keeps coming up. Right? Nurses were on strike last week. People in New London, another hospital in New London, is, is having a walkout today. Why? Because we haven't given them the PPE necessary to treat patients with COVID-19. I thought this was taken care of. I thought we had a supply chain. Right? We have Peter Navarro, okay, part of the administration. He's in charge of the supply chain. We have an admiral who's in charge of the supply chain. Why isn't it getting to us? These are the questions we need to ask our leadership because we've been failed. And it's impacting our economy. Next up, we're going to talk about the good things from COVID-19. Yes, I'm going to tell you about the things we've learned from COVID-19 and some of the pluses that have come out of this struggle that we've all faced. Because we all know when we face a struggle, there are positive things that come out of that. So we're going to talk a little bit about those in the next segment because I don't want it to be all bad news. And in our second half hour, we're going to have Dr. Nia Mae Wilson on. Dr. Wilson is the Director of Breast Surgery Research and Quality at Hartford Healthcare Cancer Institute because it's October, and I don't care what we're going through. We don't want to forget that this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back on Healthy Rounds. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. This week, we saw new CDC guidelines regarding exposure to COVID-19. Previously, you were exposed. We defined an exposure by 15 minutes of consecutive exposure unprotected to someone who has COVID-19. It's been changed to 15 minutes cumulative. So that means it doesn't have to be 15 minutes in a row. It means 15 minutes cumulative throughout the course of 24 hours where you have been exposed to someone with minimal or no protection. They're not wearing a mask. You're not wearing a mask during the course of that. So that means having lunch with someone, even if you're at a social distance, which is so variable, because, you know, three, six feet doesn't hold if somebody sneezes. So with that, we know that there's more opportunity for exposure. But I said there was going to be some good news in this. Here's one good news, one piece of good news. Med school applications are up by 17%. But what does that tell you? Well, we've never had a shortage of med school applications where young people have wanted to go into medicine. But the fact that it's up 17 percent 
demonstrates that young people today are looking at this pandemic and saying, that's what I want to do. It doesn't have to be just being a doctor. It means they've become more alert to science. And it could be in research. It could be in diagnostics. And as in this case, what the statistics show is it's up 17% overall. In one medical school it, uh, in Boston, it, it's up 26%. So there's one good thing. The other good thing is we've learned a lot from COVID-19. For example, we've learned that many of these people died not just from a lung abnormality like pneumonia, we know that that exists. But many of these people develop blood clots. they are blood clots in their limbs, as you can see by people who have had to have amputations. But also blood clots that went to the lungs and resulted in sudden death. So we know that when someone has COVID-19 and they are decompensating, they've become ill. We get them on heparin and aspirin and blood thinners. The hypoxia, something we discussed way back in March when it became relevant, meaning you get a warning when you're becoming critical, when you're starting to lose your breath. It's not just short of breath. So what you have to do is you check your oxygenation with a pulse oximeter, something you could buy at Walgreens or CVS. You put on your finger. We've all had it. And you look at the percentage of oxygenation. How much oxygen is in your blood? It could drop very low, below 90%, before you become short of breath. That's a warning sign that you need to get care. You need to leave your house and get care. Early on in this, people were sitting home, waiting till it dropped into the 80s, sometimes the 70s, where they would need a respirator. So what we found was that people who developed this hypoxia if you got to it early enough, instead of intubating and putting them on a ventilator, you gave them high flow oxygen at 15 liters a minute, a lot of oxygen. And they stood a good chance of recovering and not having to go on a respirator. So we haven't had a need as much for ventilators. Steroids work. They avoid what's called the cytokine storm, that reaction you have to an infection. It's in, don't forget that the reaction against inflammation could also be overwhelming. So you have to temper that and turn it, turn it down a little bit, and that's what the steroids do. We've learned that in many patients, laying them on their stomachs, so-called proning, helps them oxygenate better and avoid death so we've also come up with some therapeutics and we're hearing about them not cures we don't have a cure for this but we have therapeutics that help optimize patient care and minimize the number of deaths and those are things like remdesivir Things like monoclonal antibodies, the things that are touted because the president got them. Things that are still experimental, like monoclonal antibodies that we can't get, that are not available. 
but by the same token, we know that they help and work. And finally, our big hope is a vaccine in record time. We think it'll be available to everyone by mid-2021. That would allow us to really make that transition back to a normal life and normal activity with the knowledge of what we have now, the knowledge we have gained, and hopefully more young people who want to go into science and do the admirable and honorable thing and treat patients and keep people healthy. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Niamh Wilson. We're talking about breast cancer awareness. She's the director of breast surgery research and quality at Hartford Healthcare Cancer Institute. I also wanted to say I did get a Facebook uh, contact. My Facebook links have been broken, but a, a, a wonderful email came across from someone um, who, uh, a young person who I knew when I was at Backus Hospital who had breast cancer. And, and again, these are stories about young people who have breast cancer. And I want to talk about that. We're going to talk about that with Dr. Wilson. So if you need to get in touch with me, the best way to get me is info at alessimd.com. I love getting all your emails. Um, they've been so supportive over time, and it's been great to hear from you and hear your stories that we can discuss and bring guests on to answer your questions. So we're going to take our break. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning. And it's especially great to have uh, my guest. Uh, she has been with us previously on this program, Dr. Niamh Wilson. Uh, she is now the Director of Breast Surgery Research and Quality for Hartford Healthcare Cancer Institute. Dr. Wilson, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Tony. It's great to be back on. So, Niamh, just some of the statistics, I, I, I just, when I looked at them this morning, I mean, we're looking at over 276,000 new cases of invasive breast cancer that are the estimates to be diagnosed this year alone in 2020. Over 48,000 cases of ductal carcinoma in situ and over 42,000 deaths. Uh, when we looked at those statistics, which way are we moving? Are we making progress? So it's a good question. Um, in general, the, the rates are relatively stable. Um, we sometimes see a little bit of a dip here and there. Um, but, you know, in general, the, the risk of dying from breast cancer has definitely improved. Um, that's due to a combination of treatments. The way that we take care of breast cancer is a combination of surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, medications, and all of these kind of things are getting more and more targeted and individualized to the patient's cancer. And so, uh, in, you know, even though the, the overall rates are still very high, it's about one in eight women, uh, the, the risk of death from breast cancer is definitely getting lower. So that's wonderful news. In, in those statistics, can you briefly 
explain to everyone the difference between and they why they break it out between invasive breast cancer and ductal carcinoma in situ. Can you just give everybody a brief explanation as to why they break it out that way? Yeah, sure. So invasive breast cancer, uh, everyone is always very afraid when they hear that word invasive because they think it means that the breast cancer has invaded their body. But when I meet with a patient, I explain to them what is going on on a molecular, cellular level inside the breast tissue. What invasive means is that the cells on the inside of the milk duct or the milk lobule, which are the two components of the milk gland, those cells have started to multiply and grow and grow and grow. And at a certain point, the gland can't contain those cells. And so the cells then sort of break out into the tissue inside the breast. And so that's when it becomes invasive because the cells have invaded the local tissue. It does not mean that the cells have gone everywhere and that all of a sudden it's all over somebody's body. It means that the cells have broken out of the milk duct or the milk lobule in that particular area. When it's still contained inside the milk duct, that's called ductal carcinoma in situ, inside. And so that's very different because... When the cells are still inside, so that's why they make a difference, a, a comparison between invasive and in situ, because when the cells are still inside the milk ducts, that's actually considered a stage zero breast cancer. It is highly, highly treatable, and it's, you know, this is the reason that why, why we're so adamant and you know, um, you know, really encouraging women to get their mammograms done, because we want to be able to capture a breast cancer stage when it's that early. And so when someone has DCIS, which is ductal carcinoma in situ, there is no role for chemotherapy. They usually don't need very aggressive treatment. And so there's a big difference between when it's all still trapped in the milk duct versus when it's gone into the tissue. Nima, let's talk about the diagnosis because this always goes on and on. Are there new ways? Is mammogram still the best way to get at this? And have we made progress in how we do mammograms that have improved our ability to diagnose breast cancer? Yes. So the answer to that is a strong yes. We have in the past uh, typically relied on mammograms. You know, we, we recommend that women begin annual mammography at age 40 if you are at average risk. Uh, and so that's, you know, every year you come in, you do your mammogram. If you have dense breasts, you also are typically recommended to have an additional screening test, either a whole breast ultrasound or a breast MRI if you are high risk. But the mammogram is our mainstay of diagnosing and, you know, detecting early stage breast cancer. We have um, almost, you know, most locations across the state have moved towards 3D mammography. What 3D mammography is, is, you know, a mammogram is just an x-ray. It's just a snapshot of the breast tissue. But you're compressing a three-dimensional structure into a two-dimensional picture. And so you can imagine that the overlapping tissue on the inside can obscure the picture. So the 3D mammograms basically kind of take little snapshots over the breast and then to the side of the breast, and <clears throat> the pictures get collated into a stack of images that the radiologist can then scroll through and be able to sort of eliminate that overlapping tissue effect. And so 3D mammograms are absolutely better at diagnosing breast cancers. They are better at reducing the callback rates because a lot of times people get called back for more pictures to be taken, and that happens much less frequently with the 3D mammograms. And fewer biopsies are being recommended. So that is absolutely, you know, the, the best move forward.
forward in terms of the uh, technology behind mammograms. But mammograms really are the primary way that we detect breast cancer. The other tests are supplemental. Now, you said age 40. Now, there has been some controversy, and you were on the show before when we were going through all this from the various federal committee. I forgot the, the name of the committee that looked at this, but they started making some controversial recommendations that women didn't need a mammogram right away till a somewhat older age. Are we all agreed now on the age of 40? Is that the critical age, or should some women be getting it sooner? Um, and I talked a little bit about it earlier in the show that I had a nice Facebook. Uh, someone reached out to me on Facebook uh, who was diagnosed at an age, an earlier age, in her 30s. Um, so what is the actual age? What what should these listeners take from, from your advice? Yeah, it's a, it's a controversial area for sure. Uh, what you're referring to previously is what is the United States Preventative Services Task Force, the USPSTF, their recommendations are that from 40 to 49 should be a discussion with your provider, and then routine mammograms should begin at age 50 and go every other year. That is more typical than, uh, than to, uh, to what we see in the UK. That's their standard recommendation is actually every three years. And the reason that they argued for that was that they showed that you maintain 80% of the benefit when you start at 50 and go every two years compared to starting at 40 and going every year. And I always said, well, why on earth would you make a recommendation that doesn't achieve parity? You want 100% of the benefit if you're going to make an equivalent recommendation. So the, the downside of beginning early, which 40 is still, you know, young, um, is that women tend to have more dense tissue, meaning they have more milk glands than fat in their breasts when they're between 40 and 49. And so you end up with more false positives. That's when you have a test and it shows something, but it, it turns out that it's not cancer. But you still have to go through the testing and possible biopsies and, you know, a lot of anxiety around that. Um, but we still recommend age 40 because we see a, a fair number of women who are diagnosed in their 40s, and the younger women do tend to have the more aggressive cancers. So if we can capture that age group, you know, the studies have looked at this, and they show that women are much more likely and happier to have a little anxiety by, you know, getting a call back and having a benign biopsy than possibly missing a breast cancer if they started later. Um, to your other question in terms of starting earlier, there are some OBGYN groups that will recommend getting a baseline mammogram at age 35. I've never been a huge fan of that, but it, it can capture a couple people maybe here and there. But oftentimes, I think it just confuses the picture because these women have even more dense tissue and more false positives. So I'm not a big fan of just a baseline screening at 35. What I will say is that if you have family history, if there's someone in your family who is diagnosed young, and by young I mean anywhere below age 50, you need to start screening mammograms 10 years earlier than that person. So let's say your maternal aunt was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 45, or your mother or a sister or something like that, you need to begin screening 10 years earlier, so age 35. And again, because you're going to have mostly uh, women in that age group are going to have dense tissue, that means that the radiologist can't really see the images as clearly. Here in Connecticut, we recommend the additional uh, ultrasound screening to look for other findings that may be detected. The 
opinion that we should go every two or three years. Is it an economic decision that's being made? I know the Preventive Services Task Force uh, is somewhat of an oxymoron. They did the same thing with colonoscopy. But is it an economic decision that holds people back uh, or holds the recommendation back? Yeah, I think it's it's a combination of that and just, and he- yeah, so certainly health care costs. I mean, screening mammograms are not very expensive. They're widely available. There's, it's low uh, total costs overall. But really the problem are these um, false positives where women are sure. going to have to come in for more additional tests, and those tests are diagnostic, which means there's going to be a copay associated with them. For some women, they're going to need a biopsy. Those biopsies are most often benign, but that can you know, uh, accumulate thousands of dollars in terms of health care costs. So I do think it's a major, uh, it's mostly driven by economic considerations. Uh, We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Nia Mae Wilson. For those of you who want to reach out to Dr. Wilson and be seen uh, under her care, the phone number is area code 203-694-5200 for the Hartford Healthcare Cancer Institute. When we come back, we're going to be talking about treatment of breast cancer. We're going to talk about uh, the surgical options uh, that are available to women and other treatments and things that may be coming down in the future that we all want to be aware of and can follow. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back for the final segment of Healthy Rounds. We're chatting with Dr. Nia Mae Wilson who is the Director of Breast Surgery Research and Quality at Hartford Healthcare Cancer Institute. Uh, Niamh, uh, you know, we're all hearing about uh, people who are delaying diagnostic tests and routine testing uh, because of COVID. Have we seen the numbers of women coming in for their mammograms go down? Yeah, certainly during the months of the peak of the pandemic, which was really, you know, April, May, June, uh, we were seeing very, very few women coming in. And that was twofold. Obviously, women didn't want to come in. And also the radiology offices were, were closing up as well because they didn't want to put their staff at risk. So now what we're seeing, it depends on where you are in the country. Um, I, I saw a recent uh, segment about Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is one of our uh, partners. We, we link with them in terms of the Alliance Network. Um, their numbers are down about 50%. They have 50% fewer breast cancer diagnoses coming in, but that's not because of any actual reduction in the numbers. It's because people aren't coming in for their mammograms. Here in Connecticut, we are doing a little better than that, and so people are starting to come in for their mammograms. So we had a very big dip uh, over the spring and early summer, and now that people are feeling more comfortable and the precautions are being taken in the radiology offices, we are actually seeing a sort of influx now of women who have been diagnosed with breast cancer because, you know, they were supposed to get diagnosed kind of a few months ago, and they're coming in at the same time as women who are getting diagnosed, you know, at their regular time. So we are seeing a little bit of an upswing right now. Uh, earlier, we talked a little bit about treatment in terms of ductal carcinoma in situ and uh, fairly benign treatments for that. But uh, when it comes to invasive breast cancer, what what are the treatments available for women? So in terms of treatment for invasive breast cancer, one of the most important things for the breast surgeon and the oncology team that is going to take care of that patient 
is to know what the receptors are. And so um, breast cancer can be sort of categorized into cancers that are sensitive to estrogen, meaning they are growing in the presence of estrogen, and progesterone, those are the two most typical female hormones. And then there is a, uh, a growth factor protein called HER2 new. And so when we get a, a biopsy report back, from a, a biopsy that shows a breast cancer, what we're looking for is to make that determination of what that particular cancer is feeding on. And so once we have those receptors and we know if it's growing with estrogen or progesterone or her 2 new, then we can formulate a plan. Um, in terms of surgery procedures, you know, in general, the two most common types of, you know, ways to remove a cancerous lump is either a lumpectomy, which is also known as a partial mastectomy, or a full mastectomy, which is removal of all the breast tissue, uh, and oftentimes we can do reconstruction at the same time. So those are the two ways that we remove the tissue, and then because of the invasive component, which means that the cells, again, have kind of broken out into the tissue, unfortunately that means that typically then the cells could travel up to the lymph nodes in the armpit, and so Oftentimes, we end up checking some of the lymph nodes under the armpit to see if there's any uh, microscopic cells up there as well. Uh, one of the statistics we didn't talk about really was breast cancer in men. Um, there have been over, it's, it's about 2,600 new cases um, they expect to see this year. Uh, granted that it's it's much less frequently seen, but... Uh, again, and it, I wanted to touch on this, the, there's been controversy over the use of breast self-examination, both for women and men. Um, do you still recommend that? So it's a, that's a great question. Breast self-exam is also somewhat controversial because it's never been shown that for women who are doing routine once a month, as I put it, hunting for lumps, um, has ever actually increased the rate of detection for breast cancer. So most of the breast surgeons who I know, we don't want you to ignore your exam because that would be foolish and you, you want to be aware of what's going on in your body. But rather than this once a month hunting around for a pinpoint lump, we recommend that you have breast self-awareness, which means that you kind of know what your baseline tissue feels like and you can monitor for changes. So it's a little bit of a different concept, and that's what I tell my patients because a lot of people actually forget to do a once-a-month exam. For those who are doing it, I think it's okay, but it just, you know, what people should know is that the, the data actually doesn't support it. There was a huge study that looked at uh, thousands and thousands of women who were doing routine self-exams compared to women who were doing no self-exams, but everybody was staying on track with their mammograms. And there was absolutely no difference in the rates of cancer detection in the women who were doing their self-exams. In fact, the only thing that happened was that those women were much more likely to come in for benign lumps and bumps and have biopsies. And so I, I do kind of lean away from it a little bit, but I do want women to pay attention to their breasts and to know what their tissue feels like so they can monitor for changes. In terms of men, there really is no role for routine self-exam as well. But again, men should know what their you know, breast tissue feels like as well. Um, they, are, they do account for about 1% of our cancer patients, and unfortunately they do tend to present a little bit later with advanced stages because men will, are not typically thinking about breast cancer if they feel a lump in their breast. They tend to sort of ignore it. So oftentimes when a man comes in with breast cancer, 
there, there sometimes is lymph node involvement because they've sort of ignored it. So men definitely need to be aware that it can occur in, in men and that it may not be related to, uh, to a genetic condition because only about 20% of men with breast cancer actually have a genetic underlying condition. Niamh, in, in a minute, can you tell us anything we should be aware of in terms of new treatments, monoclonal antibodies, things such as that, um, anything that's going to be coming down the pike that we should be aware of? There is always something coming down the pike with breast cancer. That is the good news. Um, you know, there really are much more targeted therapies these days, even with, as I was mentioning before, the HER2 new, which is a growth, protein, growth factor kind of protein, we have targeted antibody therapy now. We have two types of targeted antibody therapy for that HER2 protein. And so those women used to have a much more poor prognosis who had that type of cancer. Uh, but now that we have these antibody treatments, which is um, extremely effective, those women actually do quite well uh, when they get this antibody treatment. So there are always new treatments coming down the road. Uh, there are immunotherapy agents that are being used. There are different surgical techniques. We are sort of getting better and better in terms of minimally invasive techniques. So I just want to encourage women not to be afraid to go in and get your mammograms done because we want to be able to find things when they are tiny and treatable, and, you know, that is the whole purpose of mammograms. So I would just want to strongly encourage everybody to go out and get your mammogram. It's safe, and we will take care of you. Niamh, thank you very much for your time, and thank you for everything you do for our community um, in the field of breast cancer. Thank you, Tony. Uh, that was Dr. Niamh Wilson. If you wish to reach out to her, area code 203-694-5200. Many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Oko, has been on the board, and Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week on Healthy Rounds, we're going to be chatting with my friend, Dr. Greg Shangold, who is the new president of the Connecticut State Medical Society. We're going to talk about how physician practices are changing, especially in the face of COVID-19. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. I want to emphasize to everybody, it's time to get out and vote. You need to vote because your life depends on it. And that's become evident by these rising statistics, not just at the top office, but right down the line. Be very mindful, educated, and get to the polls. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.